0: Save time and money versus going to a shop by picking up an AC Pro Recharge Kit today. Be a pro with AC Pro.
1: We are back with another edition of the Pipeline Podcast. Tim McMaster here along with Jonathan Mayo and Jim Callis. They're from MLBPipeline.com. The playoffs are here and the Arizona Fall League is just days away from kicking off. So that's going to be our focus this week On the podcast. Later on in the podcast, we'll look at some of the most exciting players who are going to be in action in the AFL this fall. But let's start with the postseason. And the postseason rosters, you guys put a lot of time every year into these how they were built features, basically kind of telling the story of how each playoff team was put together, whether it be homegrown, through trades, through free agency. And one thing that stands out every year when you go through these is just the fact that there's no singular way to build a playoff team, to build a World Series team. There's a lot of different ways to do it, obviously based a lot on market size and, and where you're drafting and that sort of thing um, as far as rebuilding goes. But I wanted to start with that idea. Jonathan, just when you put these together, are, are you surprised at all each year at, at how different, different teams do this?
0: Uh, at this point, no. I mean, when we first started – doing it yeah absolutely and i think uh what does still come as a surprise i mean although year after year when some of the same teams are are, are in repeatedly uh they don't differ that much but i think there are certain teams that uh you think have reputations of you know say being a, a largely homegrown team and turned out not to be or, or or vice versa uh you know always surprised when a team you know tends to be largely, you know, free agent driven, uh, you know, there's no real uh, apparent reason behind it or necessarily a philosophy, but that's just how it's, it's worked out. Um, so as, and I especially like when there are new teams, um, you know, entering the postseason because it gives us a chance to break down a new roster as opposed to you know, teams that have kind of become perennial playoff teams.
1: Jim, how do, you, do you feel like this has changed a bit in the sense that um, the way the game has changed in recent years, we're not seeing as many players get to free agency, um, so you don't see a Yankees team that's just a bunch of high-priced free agents anymore?
2: Um, I don't think it's changed that much. I mean, I think the thing that always surprises me that I wouldn't necessarily have thought would be the case is that the majority or, or the, the category where there, there's the most players for the vast majority of teams is trades. Um, You know, everybody, you know, always talks about developing, you know, signing, developing their own players, but there's a lot of trades made. But, I mean, you still see big free agent contracts. I think that's cyclical. I mean, if we're talking about, and I think we're going to be talking about the Yankees for years to come because all their young talent, but, you know, the Yankees are probably going to get under the luxury tax threshold next year so they can spend more liberally even than they have been (laughs) recently. And they're going to probably go crazy in what looks like a very good free agent class of 2018. So when we're podcasting uh, in uh, 2019 how they were built, the Yankees might have uh, a huge chunk of their team coming from free agents at that point. So I I think it's just cyclical. But to me, the biggest surprise usually is that there's there's more wheeling and dealing than I might have assumed would have gone on uh, otherwise. I want to say... I think of the ten playoff teams, seven of them acquired more players through trades than any other avenue, and I think the eighth team was tied between homegrown and trades, and, and that always kind of intrigues me a little bit.
1: Yeah, that,
0: that's... Uh, I, I just want to point out, I mean, one thing, like, that, in terms of how we do this, it's, it's, you know, the initial acquisition. So I think the two things could sort of skew it if you wanted to look at it differently. One is if a team trades for a player when they're in A ball and then develops them. That does not count as a homegrown player, uh, even though in, in every respect they, they kind of are a homegrown player. That, that counts as a traded player. And then the flip side that, you look at a team like the Yankees, and Jim mentioned the young players, uh, and, uh, and that should give them some long-term success. Uh, the one thing that teams like the Yankees or the Dodgers, uh, you know, the big market teams have the ability to do, is keep their homegrown players uh, so, uh, you know, Aaron Judge will eventually get to a point where he'll need a, a long-term extension or a free agent contract, and the Yankees could sign him long-term, just like they did, say, with Derek Jeter throughout the entirety of his career. At no point will Aaron Judge count as a free agent signing, even if he would have been a, a free agent. Uh, so it, this doesn't give that sort of complex look at how the different markets can, uh, can approach these things. Yeah, yeah,
2: there's certainly players who could qualify in, in, in two categories. I mean, you also get, uh, you know, players, you know, like I, I know I had from Yankees fans, you know, David Robertson, you know, he he's homegrown. Well, he was, but then he left and then they traded for him. So you, you get a number of players where you could really fit them into multiple categories, but, but we pick, and I think the way, the best way to define it, Jonathan, is what? we We, we give you, the way they were first acquired during their most recent stint with the club, I think is the best way to put it.
1: Yeah, because the role as Chapman would have been traded for a year ago with the Yankees, but now he's a free agent sign. And then Hanley Ramirez was originally a homegrown Red Sox before he went to trade it away in the Josh Beckett deal, and now he's a a free agent guy as well. So, yeah, it is interesting. There's little asterisks along the way. All yeah. right. Um, you mentioned the cer- certain teams are kind of a surprise, and I think... One of those teams is the Cubs because everybody thinks of all the high draft picks and all these guys that they've developed. But the World Series winning team from a year ago only had five homegrown players, and they currently only have six. Um, Jim, is that that what you mean when you talk about teams that are kind of surprising in their makeup?
2: Yeah, you know, it's funny, too, because two years ago when the Cubs made the playoffs for the first time with, with the, the core of this club, I, you know, I wrote that they didn't have many homegrown guys, but that would change, and, you know, they, they, we try, I, I know I trotted it out many times, the line that, you know, in 25 years of covering this stuff, I think the Cubs had assembled the best group of young position player talent that I'd ever seen, and, and they parlayed that into a championship last year, and then they're going to make a run at another one, and they're in the playoffs for the third straight year, but... You know, so on one hand, you know you, you have this run of five consecutive first-round picks, uh, in, in Javi Baez, Albert Almora, Chris Bryant, Kyle Schwarber, Ian Happ, all of whom are, are obviously position players. Wilson Contreras, very nice international sign, uh, gives them the sixth homegrown player. And getting to what we were talking about before, they don't count as purely homegrown players, but Anthony Rizzo. Even though he was on his third organization when the Cubs got him in one of the first moves of the Theo Epstein Jed Hoyer regime, still counted as a prospect. And although uh, you know Addison Russell was not that far from the big leagues when they got him, he, he had never played in the big leagues, so those don't count as homegrown guys. But they were part of that nucleus of, of tremendous young hitting prospects. Um, but the flip side of that is, as well as they've done finding young hitters and identifying them, there's not a single pitcher. On their playoff roster, who's homegrown? Now you could, you could, you know, if you wanted to be liberal, you could talk about Carl Edwards Jr. was another guy who was acquired as a prospect. I don't think Kyle Hendricks had played in the big leagues when he was acquired as a prospect. Although the Cubs will, will readily admit they didn't realize that he was going to be as good as he was. But, but that's really going to be the challenge going forward: uh, is is going out and developing their own pitchers. Because even though the Cubs now are, are in pretty good financial shape, they can't just go out and buy pitchers after pitchers after pitchers. But, you know, this is a team I think we all agree is going to be making regular trips to the playoffs for a few years. But I don't know if we're going to see that homegrown number change much going forward just because they don't really have any pitchers who are are ready to step in the next year or so. I mean, there will be some, but that's not going to change. And with all the trades they've made, uh, you know, now that they're trading prospects for veterans, I don't know if the minor league system has much more in the way of immediate future that they're going to bring in. So I suspect... Even though they did a total rebuild and built from within, I don't know if that, that, that number of six homegrown players, which was tied with the Diamondbacks for the fewest, is going to change too much in the next couple of years.
0: No, I, I agree with that, but I think one thing you know, that they have been able to do in terms of trading for pitchers is that they have been able to read the market and sort of buy low. Um, you know, yeah, Hendricks hadn't been in the big leagues, and he certainly overshot. But, I mean, a guy like Jake Arrieta uh, didn't really, you know, yeah, the last uh, part of this, the, the last season with the Orioles before he came over started to click a little, but the Cubs, I think, were able to buy low on him. Uh, you mentioned Carl Edwards, who they got, you know, as a minor leader. Mike Montgomery, uh, you know, has been a huge contributor. Uh, so if they can continue – And it's a big if. But if they can continue to sort of examine the pitching market every year, they might be able to, you know, to to trade for guys. If they need me now, their farm system isn't what it used to be. So they they don't have the pieces as much. But they did. They've done such a good job of finding guys before they had established themselves as as real major league contributors and, and who have then gone on to, you know, become Cy Young Award winners and all stars.
1: All right, well, the Cubs lead the way there as far as, um, I guess, trades and and what we're talking about there. The Twins, who unfortunately are no longer part of the postseason as we record this, but I still wanted to get them in here because you think about a team that's had such a big turnaround here in 2017. They lost 103 games a year ago, first team to ever make the postseason after losing 100 games, albeit a brief stay after their wild card loss to the Yankees. But the Twins lead the way with homegrown talent, 14 players out of 25, Jonathan. That's impressive, but a team like the Twins, sometimes that's how they have to do it.
0: Yeah, they have to, you know, um, you know, unless they're going to have, have you know, been a, a seller a lot at the deadline and traded for a bunch of prospects and done it that way. But in this case, there was a core uh, in place. And uh, when, I, uh, when I talked to Thad Levine for this story, I mean, he tipped his cap to, to Terry Ryan and company, and it's kind of how the Twins had done it for years and years and years. And uh, you know they they had you know they had uh, a down spell uh the year prior, you know not only the hundred loss but the it's only the second time a team has gone from having the number one pick to making the playoffs the next year the the uh, the Rays did it after taking Tim Beckham number one overall um, but I mean the same year the same year they picked number one I apologize, but uh certain guys just uh stepped up in terms of the young, some of the younger guys. uh, And that obviously starts with Byron Buxton um, and him, you know, finally starting to to turn it around or or figure things out, however you want to put it. Uh, But he, Jose Barrios, Tyler Duffy, uh, Taylor Rogers all came from the 2012 draft. Uh, So to get that kind of production, uh, and contribution from one draft class is, is, is pretty remarkable, and it's a big reason why the, the Twins were able to, f- to flip the script so so well in 2017.
1: One of the cool things you guys have done here with the how they were built is a collective war for each team as far as each segment, homegrown, trades, free agents, and, and kind of a different way to look at it. Now, it's an interesting war because when you think about trades, it, it only takes into account what the players produced while with the team. So that you have to keep that in mind with this. It's not their entire season if they were a deadline deal type move. But breaking down the war, the homegrown leader, not the Twins, despite the Twins' 14 homegrown players, the homegrown leader in war is actually the Astros, Jim, 318
2: yeah, and it, it's, you know, it's they have probably a core of five homegrown players that, that is up there with anybody's with with Jose Altuve, Dallas Keuchel, George Springer, Carlos Correa, Alex Bregman. Uh, you know, that number would be higher if Lance McCullers, Jr., and I don't know if he's capable of doing this, but put together a fully healthy season, uh, you know, that number would be higher. You know, Yuli Gurriel's international signee who they've gotten good production out of. Uh, Although he's kind of a weird one, too. He's homegrown, even though he was in his 30s and a fully developed Cuban big leader when they signed him. So that's kind of an odd category. But, you know, if you look at the homegrown guys, I mean, they've really done well with some first-round picks. You know, Springer was a number 11 overall pick. Correa was number one overall. Alex Bregman was number two. McCullers was a sandwich pick. You know, whenever I look at Bregman, I always think about how much heat and unfairly so the Astros took – With you you basically, people accusing them of of trying to pull a fast one on Brady Aiken to to try to sign some other guys. And, you know, I I think their fears about his elbow were borne out when he blew out the elbow the following spring. And even though they didn't sign, you know, Brady Aiken, which, you know, not signing number one overall pick is obviously a blow of the franchise, but you come back the next year and you get Alex Bregman with the compensation pick, that couldn't have worked out much better. But to me, the, the really interesting thing about the way the Astros came together is, you know, you look at a guy who had good chance to be the Miracle League MVP this year, Jose Altuve, who, you know, signed for $15,000 out of Venezuela, which was kind of a, uh, you know, a pittance. He was never a big-time prospect. He really didn't attract much attention until he won the minor league batting title in 2011 and made his big league debut. But, you know, as good as he is, he, he keeps getting better every year. And when I was talking to Jeff Lunell, he even remembered that they signed him. You know, when he took over the franchise, Altuve had made his big league debut and he was going to be their second baseman somewhat by default. They really didn't have a lot of options, and he had a good first full season, and they made him, they signed him to one of those, those early contract extensions, and then he got off to a really bad start in 2013, and it looked like, geez, this might not be a good contract, but he just continues to get better year after year after year, so he, so he's really exceeded expectations. And, and so is Dallas Keuchel, who was kind of just a, a finesse pitcher, uh, you know, had, you know, was never considered, uh, you know, really a top prospect. I mean, he got – I think he probably made some Masters top ten list because their farm system was basically terrible in the early part of this decade. Really struggled when he first got up to the big leagues. And they just liked the way he threw strikes and he competed. And they decided after a rough 2013 season – that they were just going to tell him, "Look, you're in our rotation next year." You know, a guy like him often feels like he has to prove himself in spring training because he's not going to come out throwing 96 and blowing guys away. And he's really repaid their faith by by being one of the best starters in baseball. So, uh, you know, very good homegrown uh, aspect to the Astros. But and I think you could probably find guys like this, you know, maybe not as good as Altuve, but guys like this on, on any team that does well is you have players who have who have vastly exceeded even internal expectations for what they were going to be in the big leagues.
1: So the Astros are the overall war leader, 55.1, and as I said, 31.8 of that in homegrown talent. Uh, The leaders, as far as trades go, it's the Indians, 30.6, and they're third overall in in war at 53.5. So a a good chunk of that comes from trade pieces, Jonathan.
0: Yeah, no, it it certainly does, and, uh, you know, some of it... uh, are uh, are obvious ones. You know, Corey Kluber leads the way. Uh, speaking of one of those trades, where you know a team getting a guy before he uh, before he was uh, really established, but uh, uh, Kluber, I think, was second among all postseason players in WAR this year. Um, so obviously, they, they've gotten uh, a, so much from him, um, and then. Uh, you know Andrew Miller, uh, in, in terms of what he, he's brought to the table. Uh, I mean, they're just uh, so many guys. Trevor Bauer, uh, kind of finally figuring it out and, 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 and contributing. Carlos Carrasco is, was next up uh, at almost five and a half. Um, so they, they've gotten some really, really strong contributions um, from guys that they've gotten via trade. Uh, over the last couple of years, and the reason why they've had this extended uh, now now extended period of of strong play,
1: the Nationals are the leaders as far as free agent war eleven point four overall. The Nationals <laughs> fifth in war among playoff teams at forty seven point five. So almost twenty five percent of that is in free agents, and obviously the free agent war numbers are always going to be lower. You can't be I mean, only so much of your team can be made up on the free agent market. When you look at the Nationals, Jim, it's a couple of big stars that make up most of that 11.4.
2: Yeah, and, you know, and also, I mean, getting to your point about free agencies, even though the Nationals have the most free agent war uh, baseball reference version on their playoff projected playoff roster, they still have more war from trades and more war from homegrown players, right. even though they have fewer <laughs> players in each category. but but you're right. I mean, uh, you know, they, they have had some big free agent moves. You know, Max Scherzer, uh, you know, who obviously his. you know, he might win back-to-back Cy Young Award winner. Cy Young Awards, you know, he's, I think it's, what, seven years, $210 million for his contract. Uh, no regrets for that. And, you know, it's funny. When I think of, of Max Scherzer as an amateur, the, 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 the scouting director who, who liked him more than anyone, I remember at the time of the draft, who was Mike Rizzo, who was with the Diamondbacks. And they took him and they signed him. And Mike Rizzo, I think, has always believed in Max Scherzer as much as anyone, and that belief has really paid off. And then the other big free agent has been Daniel Murphy, who uh, has probably given the Cubs nightmares if they think back to the 2015 playoffs. Now they get to see Murphy again. But, you know, Murphy kind of broke out, you know, toward the end of his Mets career, and it seems like he keeps getting better. And, I mean, his contract's been a bargain. I think he's, what, three years, $37.5 million. And I think he's already given the Nationals, you know, more than $37.5 million of production. And he still has another year in the year to go on the contract.
1: Uh, yeah, absolutely. Murphy kind of slipped through the the cracks there in free agency, and and people didn't know what he was coming off that great Mets run, and he proved that he was exactly that player that carried the Mets to the World Series of the last couple of years. All right, so the overall WAR breakdown: the Astros are one, the Yankees number two in WAR in the postseason, then the Indians, Dodgers. Nationals, d back six, Cubs seven, Red Sox eight. The bottom two are the number two wild cards, Rockies and Twins. So that makes sense. So Jonathan, in your article, you put together the, I guess, the postseason bracket by WAR, which kind of is is fun to look at. Just the each round, the team with the higher WAR coming through at the win. So far, one for one, the Yankees knocked off the Twins in the AL wild card as we record this, um, but but it makes for Kind of a cool look. Can you kind of break it down and how it all ends up for people?
0: Yeah, it's funny because you know, we we had filled in all of the the WAR numbers before the season was over, and uh, and then you know I updated that uh, at the end of the season. And when we had done it, I think it was Tuesday uh, before the season ended. So there were quite a few games left. I think the Indians actually were on top, and then the Astros uh, ended up streaking ahead of them. So uh, you know, just it literally was doing it completely based on the overall war totals. And, uh, you know, so we ended up with, uh, you mentioned the Yankees over the Twins, and that, uh, that has uh, worked out uh, for the game that is happening as we, well, not as we record, but the, the day that we're recording, the NL wildcard game with the D-backs beating the Rockies. The rest of the American League, the, you know, the Astros uh, beat the Red Sox uh, and the Yankees beat the Indians. And, uh, and then the Astros beat the Yankees. Um, and then on the National League side, you've got the Nationals uh, beating the Cubs, the Dodgers beating the D-backs, and then the Dodgers beat the Nationals. And then finally in the World Series, again, based on war, the Astros will beat the Los Angeles Dodgers.
1: And all of that is realistic, certainly for sure. Uh, of course, anything in the, in the baseball playoffs Seems realistic because every year we see crazy things happen. All right, so that is a summation of the how they were built. Cool thing you guys do every year, um, and it's always fascinating to look at how these teams are put together. Before we move on to the Arizona Fall League, we want to take a second to tell you about the StatCast podcast, a show dedicated to the analytics that drive front office decisions in the modern game. It's hosted by Mike Petriello and Matt Myers, and last week they delved into the StatCast data to find some of the most intriguing potential batter-pitcher matchups of the upcoming postseason. To hear about those secret mismatches, download the show from Apple Podcasts or wherever else you get your podcasts by searching StatCast podcast. Or you can go to www.stackcastpodcast.com. All right, the Arizona Fall League gets started next week. Plenty of great young players, including 12 of the top 100 uh, pipeline prospects. But I want to start with a kind of a different topic, and I got to start with you, Jim. Um, they always try stuff out in the Arizona Fall League every year, rules and that sort of thing. We saw timing of pitches and between innings and that stuff. This year, we're going to see the extra-inning placement runner. I know it's something near and dear to your heart.
2: Yeah, and you didn't even bring, me up, bring up that you were going to ask me that. I think this is a, a plot to get me fired.
1: But,
2: uh, <laughs> I, I will be honest, but I will not curse. Uh, I don't know if we're allowed to curse on the podcast, but I won't anyway to find out that we can't. But, uh, no, that's a garbage rule. It's a terrible rule. Look, I'm fine with pitch clocks, which are essentially enforcing a rule on the books and they're experimenting by making it a little quicker but but the, the put the runner on second base it's a garbage rule we certainly don't need it in the fall league where games can't go past 11 innings anyway but it's just stupid we're never I could see the rule well no I couldn't the rule's dumb no matter what I was gonna say if there was any possibility that we'd ever see this in the big leagues I could maybe see experimenting with it but it's it's just the dumbest rule ever. I mean, the, the, I don't even understand. Like, it, 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 I guess the idea is not in the fall league again, where the games are limited, that, you know, oh, you know, we're trying to shorten the games and make for better fan experience. No, nobody forces fans to sit there through a whole game. And, and I hate to tell Major League Baseball this, but a lot of fans don't stick through nine innings either. You know, what, are we going to have, like, if we have a wild card game like last night, are we just going to say, oh, God, the pace of play is so slow, Okay, we're going to start, you know, going to 2 outs per inning starting in the 6th inning because we got to get this done in 3 hours. It's a mockery of the game. Why do not they if they I've heard talk, you know, oh, this is, you know, we don't want to tax arms in the minor leagues. Why don't we just put the ball on the tee and let like, guys uh, swing? We'll do like a uh, I'll mention a sponsor, a Bowman hitting challenge like they do in the fall league, and we'll just bring that out. It's dumb. It's gimmicky baseball. It's garbage and it's just stupid. So it's, I don't know how what more I can say, but I think it's absolute garbage, and I think the chances that this ever got adopted in the big leagues is zero, and it's stupid from a development standpoint. If you want to hit in the minor leagues, if you're worried about taxing teams that use too, you know, the game goes on too long, just make a minor league rule that says games are called a tie after 13 innings or whatever. But, but this, this, they do this international baseball, and it's stupid there too. It's just absolute garbage.
1: Jonathan, I don't know if you want to try to play devil's advocate, or just we can move on.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I'm laughing too hard. I love it. I think it's awesome. It's exciting. <laughs> I'm just kidding. I just I can't I can't muster it up. You know, the thing that uh, I'll just add one thing about that. You know, is 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 you know, Arizona Fall League is developmental, and that is first and foremost. So if say. Prior to this, the folly games would go on for 17 innings, and you were burning through arms, and it was dangerous. Okay, I could see doing this to protect the arms because that you know the, that the league is not about uh, winning and losing so much. But they cut the games off anyway, so you know I, I don't really understand why they would would be trying to set And I agree with Jim in terms of, you know, I'm all for them using the folly to experiment with certain rules, but but it only should be rules that really have any chance of of being used at the big league level. Now, I, I don't know, maybe back in like the late 60s, early 70s, you know, people were talking about the designated hitter in the same way and, and it, as something that would never actually happen. But, you know, uh, I, I doubt that somehow.
1: Uh, as far as pace of play goes, this rule would not have helped the Yankees and Twins on Tuesday night, who finished up their 8 o'clock Eastern time game uh, after midnight, and that game was nine innings. So I right. think if you're going to improve pace of play, there's certainly ways to do it within the Set nine innings before you worry but about the extra. The pitch
2: innings. clock, look, the pitch yep. clock makes sense, and what they're doing is experimenting to see if they can reduce, make the pitch, you know, reduce the time between pitches. I think the rule calls for twenty seconds, and it's going to be twelve or fifteen seconds now with runners on base. Look, that's a worthy experiment. Yep. Um, you know, if you want to improve pace of play, how about you just make pitchers stay on the mound and batters stay in the batter's box and your pace of play would be a lot quicker too instead of having the guy get out of the batter's box after every pitch and adjust the batting gloves i mean there's better ways to do it i mean can you imagine can you imagine if we're in the world series last year game seven tenth inning okay cubs go put a runner on second base i mean people would have an open revolt i mean that would be ridiculous. It's just, it's stupid. It's stupid to have international play. It, it, I don't even like it. Like I said, if you're worried about it in the minor leagues because you don't want your low-class A team playing 15-inning games, make a minor league rule that after 12 innings, a minor league game is a tie. That's fine.
1: There you go. Yep. All right, let's get away from this. That's enough time on that. Let's get into the players at the Arizona Fall League, which is why it's Better. an exciting league every year, um, and there's plenty of talent heading there this season, including four uh, club number one prospects, as I mentioned, 12 players in the top 100. So it's a good group. Uh, Jonathan, some of these guys have already made their big league debuts, like Victor Robles um, and Francisco Mejia. Um, But when you look at, at the list of players heading to Arizona, anybody in particular, you're excited to see compete at this level.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think getting the chance to, I mean, Robles is a good one, but getting a chance to see Ronald Acuna play, um, you know, some in the Futures game uh, for a quick glimpse, you know, and he showed off some of his tools, uh, even if the box score doesn't uh, doesn't show at StatCast w- would. To be able to, you know, one of the best things about the Fall League is, uh, you know, it's not that one-game showcase, bright spotlight kind of deal, um, but getting to get multiple looks at a guy and have him get you know multiple at bats and play an entire game um, uh, are all bonuses. So I'm I'm really looking forward to getting to watch him do his thing um, for more than just that one you know brief look that we got uh, in, in Miami in July. Uh, you know everything that he did this year to 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 make it from a ball up to triple a and just rake throughout and put up you know ridiculous numbers power and speed and he's incredibly young and he's knocking on the big league door um you know he's an exciting guy uh and uh, i want to see you know even though he's already shown that he can compete at the upper levels of the minor league system i want to see how he does uh in the fall league for sure
1: jim how about you
2: yeah, no, I mean, I think it's, I mean, you talk about Robles and Acuna, I mean, they're two of the players with, with the best all-around tools in the minors. A guy who's not as advanced but is in that same category as Estevan Florial of the Yankees. Mm-hmm. As deep as that farm system is, he might have a higher ceiling than anybody in it. Um, you know, he's probably, you know, a year, a year and a half developmentally behind Robles and Acuna, but I think we're going to see him as a major part of Yankees' teams. I mean, he just has exciting all-around talent. I mean, from a... A pitching standpoint, I mean, Mitch Keller of the Pirates is a better uh, better pitching quality pitching prospect than we usually see in the fall league. Uh, you know, he missed sometime this year, not a ton with, with the back strain, but, you know, looking forward to really seeing him. Uh, he's been very good the last couple seasons in the Pirates system. And, you know, Kyle Lewis is a guy who hasn't had a chance to play a lot because he, he hurt his knee shortly after the... The Mariners took him in the first round of the draft a couple of years ago. Uh, you know, At the time, I, I would have taken Kyle Lewis with number one overall pick. I really, really like Kyle Lewis, and I'm curious to see what he looks like and, and how much the knee injury you may or may not hamper him. I, you know, I think he's back to 100%, and I'm, I'm looking forward to seeing that.
1: When you guys are down there in Arizona watching these games, obviously it's players from all different levels of the minors. You have the Cunha and Rob, Robles who are kind of knocking on the door. There's guys from the lower levels that haven't seen that higher-level stuff yet. Do you look at each player differently based on that sort of thing, or do you just try to kind of throw them into a group and see, regardless of experience, how they compete against that competition? Jonathan, why don't you start?
0: I, I mean, I mean, obviously, I think you have to, uh, just like when you're evaluating any any prospect. Yes, we try to line them up and, and rank them, but uh, you have to take into account their age and, and, you know, how much they've played and what level they're at. Uh, you know, there's a certain level playing field, you know, we've certainly seen guys, I mean, you look at labor Torres last year, uh, you know, hadn't faced, uh, upper level competition and, and was completely dominant. Um, you know, it's a, it's a really good test, uh, to see how, uh, guys from the lower levels, you know, I think a guy like Florio is a perfect example, uh, you know, uh, this is a guy who showed a lot of interesting things this year. Uh, I think we'll end up talking a lot about him for top 100 lists just because of the tool package. Um, if, you know, yeah, the fall league is a small sample size and it tends to be friendly for hitters. But if a guy like that performs well, uh, it invariably will inform our, our rankings. And I think, you know, sets them up to move you know, a little more quickly through the Yankee system next year. Uh, you know, so, uh, but I do think that you have to kind of look at each guy and, and be, you know, at the very least cognizant of, of their backgrounds, where they came from, and what they, you know, what their professional experience has been up to the point that they get there.
2: Yeah, I'd agree with all that. and I'd also throw in, too, another factor. You have to maybe give the younger guys a little bit more slack. And everything we do, I mean, I think we, we always consider age – is that they're not as as accustomed to playing uh, a full season. You know, a guy like Florial, this was his first, you know, five-month minor league season uh, since he signed with the Yankees, and now he's got another six weeks of games tacked on to it. And, you know, I remember uh, maybe it was 2013, Jonathan, I want to say I was working for MLB at the time, and that was my first summer, but Corey Seager, like, was horribly overmatched in the fall league, just looked exhausted um, and didn't hit well at all had one of the worst lines in the league. But at the same time you had to realize, look, the guy's 19 years old and he's just getting going. It's not the same as some of these guys who are 23, 24 who' have been playing for a while. So, so you definitely have to take age and experience into consideration. And you know for guys, you know another thing with Floreal, I mean I, I'd say fall league in general, I'd equate it to you know maybe double A uh, quality of competition. And a guy like Floral hasn't seen that quality of pitching yet. So, you know, we, we definitely will take that into account, um, you know, when we see him. And as Jonathan said, last year Torres, you know, was extremely young, one of the younger guys in the league, and he was MVP and the batting champion, and, and I just made him stand out even more.
1: I have National League Championship Series duties this season, so if the Diamondbacks make it, guys, we might be able to have a reunion in, uh, in Arizona if, if one of you or both of you are down there at the Fall League at some point during that same window. We'll see.
2: I think I want to say between us, Jonathan, I'll bet we're down there for probably close to four to six weeks, and Mike Rosenbaum will be down there too. But we're down there for you know, one or the other of us for more than half the schedule. So maybe we will see you at Chase Field. That
1: could be an exciting month of October in Arizona at the prospect level and the big league level. We will see the Diamondbacks. In action tonight against the Rockies in that National League Card game. Alright, that's going to do it for another edition of the Pipeline Podcast. For Jonathan Mayo and Jim Callis, I'm Tim McMaster. Tune in again next time.
3: Hey, Rob Bradford here. You guys know I'm always up for a good MVP story and one of the best